Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, focusing on verses 13 and 14 today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever heard the expression, the Protestant work ethic? Are you familiar with that expression? Yeah, you've heard that? Okay, it comes from, it comes from a 1905 book by Max Weber, who was uh, quite a scholar. He was a sociologist, I guess we would call him. And um, he makes some remarkable connections between Protestant theology and prosperity, uh, capitalism. Uh, and he connects uh, how this worked in the West. And it's a, it's a fascinating book. Uh, but I have to say he was a better sociologist than he was a theologian. Because he, he, he did his homework and he looked into this doctrine that we find repeated in this text about election and about predestination. And he concluded erroneously, and I've heard others do this as well, that this is a mysterious idea that God chooses people and there's no way for them to know whether they're chosen or not. And so what he decided was that the Protestants, particularly the Puritans, what they did is they were very industrious and very frugal and they became wealthy, although they didn't spend it on themselves, they invested it in their businesses and so capitalism prospered. But they did so in order to show that they were chosen, in order to show that they were among the elect. And so uh, he, he may have made some, some proper connections between Protestant theology and, and prosperity in the West, but he didn't get election and predestination right, because he painted it as if this were something that is God's decree and we cannot know until the end whether we are elect or not. Now, as I said a couple weeks ago, knowing that you are elect is the simplest thing in the world. If you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, as he is offered in the gospel, you have been chosen by God. That is the evidence thereof. And I'm not making that up. When we look at the whole of this text, we see that. Because Paul began this text in praising the Father by saying in verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us. Now, this is God's eternal decree to which we have no access. We do not know 
God's eternal decree. That is his responsibility. But at the end of it, he says that those who are in Christ are in Christ because they have heard the gospel and believed it. And that's what we find in our text. And by hearing the gospel and believing it, we show that we are among the elect. And in addition, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we have seen how this, this roughly, this whole section divides into benefits from the Father, benefits by the Son, and now we get to benefits through the Holy Spirit. And we find that those who are elect, those who are in Christ, those who are believers in Jesus, those are all equivalent expressions, also have an assurance that they are in Christ and an assurance that lasts to the very end. There is a guarantee, there is an assurance that those who are in Christ are eternally safe in Christ. And so this text is very expansive. It begins in eternity past with the decree of God, and it extends all the way to eternity future, the security eternally of those who are in Christ. So eternally in Christ from the past to the future. Now, uh, Paul wrote a version, a variation, of an expression that, that occurs 12 times in the first 14 verses. It, it occurs in a few different ways, and Robbie focused on this last week, and he did an excellent job of explaining this idea of in Christ. We have, I think if I've accounted right, we have... 12 times, and then if you throw in through Christ, we have 13 times this expression, in the beloved, in him, in whom, in Christ. And as Ravi explained last week, that all of the blessings that we have described here, we have in union with Christ. They are located with Christ. And if we are connected to Christ by faith, those blessings that are in Christ, having been purchased by Christ, are ours. They are ours. And he, he says that. He begins this section, verse 13, in him. And then he says it again, in him, twice in verse 13. So make sure you listen to Robbie's excellent explanation of this, if you didn't, uh, from last Sunday. It indicates that all the spiritual blessings we have are found only in Christ and in union with him. They are not found outside of Christ. That is where they are located. So if we want these if we want these blessings that are described here, and we'll look at some of these uh, and, and, and kind of at the end we'll summarize and look at these and say, if you want these, there is one place or one person in whom to find these, and that is in Christ. Now, Paul made a shift here in these verses. He has been talking about we. The pronoun he's been using is we. And then in verse 13, he shifts in him you, and this is you plural, you all, in him, you all also. So why the shift? Some suggest that he is saying, we Jews and you Gentiles. But as we go on, we'll find out that that's exactly the kind of language that Paul is trying to get rid of, uh, because in chapter 2, he is going to emphasize that we Jews and you Gentiles are actually now one body. And we'll see that in chapter 2. We are one body. Those differences have been have been erased for those who are in Christ. So it's unlikely that he's going to say, we Jews have these benefits, you Gentiles have other benefits. Uh, more likely, he is simply, as, as preachers do, he's, he's personalizing this, and he is referring back to their experience of becoming 
in Christ. And he is recalling how they, his readers, came to hear the gospel and to believe it because he rehearses their experience. And he's calling to mind something that they could remember and say, oh yes, we recall that experience of, of hearing the gospel and believing it. Now, they came into possession of these benefits and the only way we can come into possession of these benefits is just that. Look at these verbs here. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what are the two things? It says we need to hear and we need to believe. We need to hear and we need to believe. And it describes what we need to hear as the word of truth. There are some richly ambiguous expressions in these verses. And this is one of those. The word of truth. Does that mean the word about the truth? The word that is true? It's kind of hard to decide exactly, but then he goes on to describe it as the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of your salvation. And gospel, it means good news. Good news about your salvation. Now, what is that good news about your salvation? Well, Paul sums it up in, in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, I passed on to you, of, which is of first importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is a very simple summary of the good news of your salvation. That is the gospel. And it's, it's described here in this section. Last week, you looked at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So there is mentioned his death, that we have redemption through his blood, only because he has sacrificed himself as the God become human for our sins, so we can have forgiveness. That is that is the gospel message, and that is the, the thing we need to, to hear and to believe. Now, um, normally the tense of these getting a little technical here of these, these participles, uh, maybe more woodenly translated, it would be, in him you, all, you also, having heard and having believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what's the connection between these, these verbs? So you have believed, having believed, having, oh, I'm sorry, having heard, having believed, were sealed. Were sealed is the main verb of this section. Worse, you were sealed. Um, these are not three different times. Like at one point you heard, another time you believed, and then at some point later you sealed. Rather, they are logically connected. In order to believe it, you first have to hear it, or at the same time you're hearing it, you may believe it. But at that time of hearing it and believing it, we have the main action here. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is to say, that the result of hearing and believing is being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, um, this, uh, this is the message of redemption through Christ. This is the gospel. This is the only way to have all the benefits that are listed here. And um, as I said already, God's eternal decree is not your responsibility. It's not your responsibility or even within your ability to pry into God's eternal decree. You don't need to worry about that. But there is something within your responsibility, and that is to hear the good news and to believe it. That, that's what, what, what you need to do. 
to hear the good news and to believe it. And so I ask you before we continue, have you heard the good news? Well, I know you did if you've been paying attention, but I just repeated the good news here. You've heard it at least today and probably many other times. Have you believed the good news for yourself? Have you believed upon Jesus for your salvation? That he is the only one in whom you might have the forgiveness of your sins, the, the redemption of your entire lives. If you have not believed it, I know you've heard it today. If you have not believed it, then believe it today and enter into the fullness of all that is offered here for you. Now, getting back to the main verb, we're sealed. That is in the passive voice. It doesn't say who sealed. It just said you were sealed. And this is, this is what we find oftentimes in Scripture when there's a, the passive voice, you were sealed, and it doesn't say who did the action. It's what we call a divine passive. That is, it's referring to God without referring to God. And in this case, uh, most likely, it's the Father who sealed you. You were sealed by the Father, and then it says, with the Holy Spirit. Now, I refer you to Robbie's excellent explanation of the Trinity last week. Robbie gave a little, a little uh, explanation in his sermon of the Trinity. Go back and look at that. Um, so it seems to be that what's going on here is the Father is sealing his own people in the Son and with the Spirit. With the Spirit. Now that word with, that preposition with, could mean a, a few different things. But uh, here it means that the Spirit is the seal. He is the seal. If I say something like this, I sealed the box with tape. I sealed the box with tape. And then I ask you, what is the seal of the box? And what's the answer? The tape. The tape. Exactly. And so if if we read here that we were sealed with the Spirit, the, 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 the question is, what is the seal? And the answer is, the Spirit is the seal. He is the seal. Now, there's a richness to this imagery here. Because in the Bible, sealing, we find it throughout Scripture in different places, sealing could simply mean to close, to close up. Um, if you think about uh, the end of Daniel, we looked at Daniel a few months ago, and at the end of Daniel, God told Daniel to seal up the book. What's that mean? Close the book. So it can simply mean that. Matthew, uh, the end of Matthew, where they buried Jesus in the tomb, and then what did they do to the tomb? They sealed the tomb, the same word here, they sealed the tomb. So they, they closed up the tomb. That's not the meaning here, but that's a, that's a meaning we find elsewhere. There are other meanings, three other meanings that are possible here. And it's interesting that the scholars debate which of these meanings is the, the most, the most uh, likely here. Um, and one of them is to authenticate as genuine. Authenticate as genuine. And we understand this, don't we? Documents, when you have an official document, what does it often have? It has a seal, and that seal authenticates it as genuine. This is, uh, find this in Scripture, if you go if you go back to Esther, and there is that, that question of, of the edicts of the king. And there is this, this question of the edict of the king that is sealed with the king's ring. It cannot be revoked. Why? It is authentic. It is official. And so that's one possible meaning here. Another possible meaning is to mark ownership, something like a brand, saying, okay, I own this. And related to that is also protection from harm. Because that which is ours, what do we naturally do for it? We protect it 
from harm if it is ours. If it has our name on it, we are especially zealous to protect it. And you see that meaning in Revelation chapter 7. There are those 144,000 that before these, these terrible plagues are going to be poured out, the 144,000 are what? They are sealed. They are marked with God's name. They are, they are owned by God and therefore protected by God from what was to come. Now, it's hard to decide which of these last three ideas is the most prominent. Authentication, uh, ownership, or protection, um, but I'm not sure we really have to decide here. Um, a couple of these ideas are, are, are very, are, they're very prominent in, in other parts of Scripture. When Peter was explaining the baptism of the Gentiles, do you remember this story? Uh, God called Peter to go to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius was a Gentile. And up to that point, the apostles had been evangelizing Jews and Jews only, or Jews and Jewish converts. They had not gone out to the Gentiles. It really had not sunk in that that's what they were supposed to do. So Peter, in an extraordinary way, gets called to go to Cornelius' house, and he doesn't even get it why he's there. He says, why did you call me? And they said, well, we want to hear words of eternal life. And an angel told us to talk to you, and you would tell us. And Peter said, oh, I guess I should preach the gospel. And so he began to preach the gospel, and what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on them just as he had on the, uh, the believers in the day of Pentecost. And so Peter goes back to Jerusalem. The Gentiles were baptized. And Peter goes back to Jerusalem, and the Jewish Christians were saying, Peter, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Going into a Gentile's house? Baptizing Gentiles? Where, where did you get this idea? And Peter told the story, but the clinching argument that silenced everybody and caused them to marvel was this. They received the Holy Spirit just like we did at the very beginning. And then everyone was silent and glorified God. And they said, God is granting repentance even to the Gentiles? They were amazed. But what was the clinching argument? It was that they received the Holy Spirit. So they were authenticated. They were genuine believers. Why? Because they had the Holy Spirit. There is also in this, in this text here the idea of the guarantee, which is, which is to protect something future. So we have the promised Holy Spirit. And by the way, here's another, here's another richly ambiguous term. The promised Holy Spirit, does that, it's, 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 it's literally the spirit of promise, the Holy. The spirit of promise, the Holy. And they've smoothed that out for us, the promised Holy Spirit. And it could mean the Holy Spirit that was promised in the Old Testament. Or it could mean the spirit who is holy, who makes the promise come to, 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 uh, into its own. He is the one who effects the promise. Once again, different shades of meaning. We don't need to have to, it, it's rich here. We don't need to, have, need to decide exactly, but he certainly was promised and he certainly is the one who brings the promise into effect. But it says here, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Guarantee of our inheritance. And this, of course, is, is emphasizing the security that, that one, when one is, is, is sealed with the Holy Spirit, there is a guarantee there. And this, this word guarantee, uh, is, is perhaps better understood for us as a down payment. Down payment. And what is a down payment? If you're going to buy a house, you put how much down? 10% down, 20% down, whatever you can afford, you, you put that down. 
And what does that down payment do? Well, it assures the, the house is going to be yours completely, entirely, provided you do what? Yeah, make the rest of the payments, right? You got to make the rest of the payments. And so here, God is saying, I am going to give you myself as the down payment. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. And that down payment guarantees that everything else will be ours. This is not like a pledge where you give a pledge and then you get it back. No, this is something that is given and not taken back. It is given and more is given besides. And so the Holy Spirit is the down payment of all the benefits. He is the, the first installment of the full payment of redemption. So to, to say that simply, if you have the Holy Spirit, you will receive everything, everything that God has in store for his people. You will be lacking in nothing whatsoever. How do you know that? He has already given himself the Holy Spirit as the pledge, or as rather the down payment. And then this whole section ends with that, with that long game in view. Where is this, where is this going? The guarantee of our inheritance. Inheritance, and, and Robbie talked about the inheritance last week. And so there is this, this, we already have, he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and we have an inheritance, the, the full possession thereof. And he uses that kind of language here. Guarantee of our inheritance, and there are, are two purpose clauses here uh, at the very end. It says, guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Very, very woodenly translated, it's something like this. For redemption of the possession, for praise of his glory. So the two purposes, two purposes here. All of this comes down to these two purposes. For redemption of the possession, and for praise of his glory. Once again, we have a, an expression that's kind of richly ambiguous. Uh, the, uh, the version that we're using says, until we acquire possession of it. And that makes sense, right? You have the down payment, you're going to get the rest of the possession. That fits here. But other texts in scripture talk about the possession, and it's not what we are going to receive, it is we ourselves. We are the possession. And so another possibility here is that until the full possessing of God's possession, that is until, uh, until the time when God has all of his possession in hand, until he finishes possessing us, the full redemption, not of what we're going to have, but of us who are God's dear possession. So that's, that's one of the purposes. And then the final purpose, the ultimate purpose, the, the chief purpose of God, is to the praise of his glory. And we've seen this repeated three times at the, in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse, in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then at the end here, to the praise of his glory. God's final purpose, God's, if we can say it this way, reason for existing is for the praise of his own glory. Now, um, that for any other being would be exceedingly selfish. That would be terrible for any other being to exist for his or her own glory. For God, any other purpose would be beneath him. Any other purpose would not be worthy of God. 
because of who God is, he must exist for his own glory. And this is something that we need to we need to capture and we need to understand because sometimes we think that God exists for my good. But that's not his ultimate purpose. God exists ultimately for his glory. And you know what? It's a good thing for us that he does. It's a good thing for us that he is focused on himself and his own glory because the way it works in God's economy is this. When God gets the glory, we get the goods. When God gets the glory, we get the goods. And so this is anything but selfish, because the way that God gets the glory is by the full redemption of his beloved people. And so how does God go about glorifying himself? He goes about glorifying himself by redeeming his people. God gets the glory. We get the goods. What are the goods? We've seen these goods in this text so far. Grace, peace, every spiritual blessing, election, holiness, blamelessness, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, knowledge of his will, inheritance, the gospel, faith, full possession. Those are the goods that we get. And all of these are sealed to us with the Holy Spirit. Now we noted that in this this whole section, this praise section, these three sections correspond to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But also throughout this whole section, the benefits are from the Son, in I'm sorry, from the Father, in the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. And actually, this section begins with the Holy Spirit and ends with the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual, probably should capitalize that, every Holy Spirit blessing in the heavenly places. And then it ends with, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In modern Greek, the word that's used here for down payment or guarantee is used in modern Greek for an engagement ring, an engagement ring. And so a man wants to wed a woman, and he gives her this engagement ring. And that's a very, very illustrative use of that, that word in modern Greek. Why? Because what is the man saying when he gives her that ring? He's saying, I give you this, this very, very valuable piece of jewelry. And I have sacrificed so I can, I can, I can put this, this very valuable piece of jewelry for me, whatever level that might be. But for me, it's valuable. It's very costly for me. And I, I give that to you. And this is a sign. And this is a seal that I am going to give you everything else. I am going to give you myself. I am going to give you my life. I am going to give you everything I own, everything I have now or will ever have in this life. It will all be yours, and I am sealing that to you. I am giving you this sign to show you that I will give you everything, and you will be lacking in nothing that I can provide for you. Now, as Robbie pointed out last week, this section doesn't have a single command in it. It doesn't tell us anything. And it implies that the way we need, not implies, but it describes the way we need to get into crisis to hear and believe. It doesn't say that explicitly, but we, we see that here. But there is no command in this. It is all praise. It is all enjoyment. It is all receiving God's blessings. 
And if you want commands, stick around for the rest of Ephesians. We will start with commands in chapter 4. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's all about God's grace. It's all about what he's done. Chapters 4 to 6, it's now what? How do we live? And I don't want to mess this up by introducing a command here, but I just want to observe something. And that is, whenever I have seen a woman become engaged and receive a, an engagement ring, I, I have never seen her do anything other than show it off to the world. <laughs> They walk around like this and do everything they can to show that they have that that way, that engagement ring on their hands. They show it off. They say, I am now sealed. I have the, I have the sign that my beloved is going to possess me and I am going to possess him. And they show it off. And so may the Holy Spirit's presence be shown off to the world in all of our lives. Let's pray. God, we look at this text, and our reaction is, well, that's too much. All of this for us? And then we realize that it's for the praise of your glory. And that's why it's so extravagant. Because your grace is so extravagant. And we thank you, those of us who believe in Jesus, that we are in him, that all of these things are ours, and that we have been sealed with the Spirit so that we will come into full possession and be fully possessed by you. Lord, what more can we say but thank you, thank you, thank you, we love you, we adore you, we praise you. And pray that in all we do, the seal of the Spirit would be evident in our lives. We pray in Christ.